Amen. Well, thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Uh, my name, as you said, my name is Joseph. Uh, I have the privilege of being the youth pastor uh, at Westside Church. So, really excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, this is my first time at The Rock. So, pretty excited. Yeah, whoop, whoop. Um, this is actually my first time, too, in like real Squamish. So I know I'm the typical, like, just come off the road and stop at, like, whatever's over there uh, and not make my way to the actual real Squamish. But uh, great to be with you. Uh, I haven't known Glenn very long. We, we have only had a few conversations uh, over the last couple weeks and months. Uh, but I was honored to be able to come and to preach, uh, open God's word with you. Uh, so really, really excited about this morning, excited about our passage. So if you do have a Bible, turn with me uh, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I think there's some in the back, or you can just grab your phone. Uh, but just make sure you have that passage in front of you. Philippians chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, as we all once were, you can feel free to uh, use the table of contents or Google uh, or whatever you have to get you uh, to that text. So this morning, uh, I want to share something that's been on my heart that's been really important to me over this last season of my life and my journey, my discipleship with Jesus. So wherever you are on the faith spectrum, if, if you've been following Jesus kind of your whole life and you grew up in church, uh, or if you are maybe checking things out, you're not a Christian, you don't identify as a follower of Jesus, maybe this is your first time here, uh, this text especially is amazing because there's something for all of us. So regardless of how you come in, uh, what you believe, where you've been, what you've done, uh, this passage is going to be really encouraging, uh, really convicting for each of us. So this morning, I want to speak from the subject of garbage and gain. So garbage and gain. So that'll make more sense as we walk through it. So Philippians chapter 3, uh, we're going to read verses 4 through 11, and we're going to pick it up halfway through verse 4. So let me read this for us. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Paul writes this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord." For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Let me pray for us uh, this morning. Jesus, uh, we come to you so thankful for today, thankful for who you are and what you've done for each of us. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come. Uh, we know that you're already here, but I ask that you would speak to us, that you would convict us, that you would comfort us and encourage us and point us to Jesus. I pray that 
uh, you would have a word for each of us this morning, again, regardless of, of how our life is going or the things that we're walking through or struggling with or, or seeing victory in, that you would just point us to Jesus, that he, we would see his beauty, his grace, uh, and that he would be made known and magnified this morning in our time together. And so, Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, never in my life had I cared more about my resume than when I first moved to Vancouver. So I I don't know any of you, so this is going to be all new. But three years ago, I was living in St. Petersburg, Florida. I was born and raised in the States. I was living in Florida. My wife and I were teaching at a school, same school, same schedule, no kids. We were two miles from the beach. We both had a salary. We were paying off college debt. We had just bought a new car. Sunny, suburban, St. Petersburg, Florida. Life was incredible. And in the midst of all of that, God in his wisdom, for whatever reason, uh, decided to change our direction for life. Uh, And I ended up selling everything that we had. My wife and I felt called to Vancouver through a crazy set of circumstances that I don't really have much time to get into. Uh, But we sold it all. We packed up and we moved here to Vancouver to start the youth ministry of Westside Church. So when I first began the conversations with the pastors and the staff of moving to Vancouver, they were like, all right, so who do you know? Like, is Nicole Canadian? Or like, what's your deal with Canada? Why do you want to come up here? And I was like, "Uh, I'm not Canadian. I've never even been to Vancouver. I've never even been to the West Coast. Uh, So I don't really know. I just feel like God's like calling us here and, and... You don't have anybody doing youth ministry, and that's what I love doing, so I hire me. Uh, But I knew that in order for Westside to hire me, I had to have like some some credibility. So I did what anybody does when they're looking for a job, is I went to my resume, and I just made it look amazing. Like I updated everything. So I looked back over uh, the last few years of my life, and I thought through all the things that I had done, and my accomplishments, and my education. Uh, I put on there that Uh, I had been a pastor at other churches. I put that I went uh, to a university, did my undergrad in youth ministry, and then I went on to seminary for my Master of Divinity. I put that I had, like, preached at youth conferences and, like, led worship and blah, 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 all the while hoping that my resume, my credentials, what I had done, what I accomplished, would not only convince Westside, but would also convince the Canadian government to give me a work visa, right? Because it's not like I can drive up to the border and he's like, where do you live? And I'm like, well, I was living in Florida, but Jesus called me to Vancouver. So like, I'm going to live and work here now. Uh, all right. The guy, the girl there wouldn't be like, all right, you're good to go. Right. I have to give him paperwork. I have to sit down. I have to have an interview. There's a lot of things that need to happen. But in the midst of all of that, I was trying to prove myself because I knew that my background and what I had done, what I accomplished, was, was going to be what got me this job, right? I can't just be a good guy. I can't just, like, know somebody, right? I have to have credentials. There has to be something for them to look at, to convince them why I should have this job. Now, how many of us find ourselves acting the same way with God? How many of us Uh, If you're anything like me, we often see God as as a border guard who is looking at our documents, right? And we bring God our achievements 
and our life and the things that we've done and our background and our behavior, and we bring them to God and we say, okay, God, here are the things that I've done for you. Will you love me? Will you bless me? Can I have favor from you because of these things that I've done that I'm going to give to you? And our confidence, our identity is found oftentimes in the things that we've done, in the person that we are, and and maybe the things that we haven't done. We're looking to our achievements, our life, our background, to be worthy, those things that make us worthy of God's love, his blessing, and his favor. And Paul, in our passage for this morning, sheds light on this lie that we can earn our standing before God and shows us what it means to be saved by grace through the person and work of Jesus and the implications of living out that gospel identity in our day-to-day life. So I know I'm a guest speaker, and uh, you haven't been walking through the book of Philippians, and so we're kind of like launching in mid-letter. Let me just bring us all up to speed. Paul is writing this letter to a church community very similar to this one in the city of Philippi. In the first two chapters, Paul has laid out who Jesus is, what he's done, the good news of the gospel. And in chapter 3, he transitions from that to saying, okay, based on what chapters 1 and 2 are talking about, let's see what the implications are for our life as we walk out living in this identity, this confidence of who Jesus is and what he's done. So we didn't read these verses, but Paul starts off chapter 3 by talking about false teachers who are adding to the gospel. So these people are coming into church, even those outside of the church, and they're saying, faith in Jesus is great, that's awesome, but then there's a big list of things that you need to do in order for God to give you favor, to give you blessing, for him to be pleased with you. Like, you trusted Jesus, awesome, that's great, But there's a huge list of things that you have to do after that in order for God to be happy with you, for you to get blessing and honor from God. These false teachers, like many do today, were saying that your standing with God is most clearly defined by what you do, how you act, and where you come from. And in our text, Paul is going to address that lie. He's going to talk about his own confidence and show us the futility of finding our confidence and our identity in anything or anyone other than Jesus. So look with me at verse 4. Paul picks up on this theme by speaking to the false teachers, and, and Paul here is laying out his religious resume. So Paul is going through who he is, what he's done, the things that he have, uh, has accomplished, and he's laying it before his people, and Paul is saying, I don't care what your life is like, I guarantee you my life is better. My achievements are better, my education is better, I have done better things than you. I, Paul, in essence, is saying, I'm a better person than you. All right, so just keep that in mind through your context. So Paul talks about two areas of confidence in these first few verses. First, if you're taking notes, Paul talks about his background. Paul talks about his background. In verse 5, Paul says that he was circumcised on the eighth day, which is not something that a lot of us would probably put on our spiritual resumes, 
But in the Torah, which is the teaching, this law for Israel, the first five books of our Old Testament, the Torah commanded that parents were to circumcise their firstborn sons on the eighth day. So Paul is saying, my family was amazing. My parents, they took me to synagogue. My parents taught me to follow the rules, train them up in the way of the Lord. And when they were old, they will not depart from it. That was Paul's family. Like his parents were amazing, family amazing. He goes on to say that he's of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Now this word people is where we get our word genealogy. So Paul is coming from the best tribe, the best family, the best neighborhood. In, in Harry Potter terms, Paul is a pure blood, right? Any Harry Potter fans? No? All right. I love it. I love Harry Potter, but missed it. All right. But Paul, Paul can trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. So this is thousands of years after Abraham. There were very few Hebrews who could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. So Paul, in our terms, he's like of the royal family. Like he is legit. But he not only comes from a great family, but he also had a great education. He says that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, the education system in first century Israel had three levels, all right? So first was like the grade school level. Everybody went to that. It was kind of like your basic school. Second level was kind of your secondary college university level. And then the third level was for the best of the best of the best. Like almost nobody got into this level. It was called the Talmudim. And what would happen is it, ha- it, it was men only. So if you're a woman, you're not allowed. Men only went to this school. You had to come from a perfect family. You had to have a perfect track record. And you had to memorize the entire Old Testament. So Genesis through Malachi, these Talmudim, these disciples, had the whole thing memorized. So Paul is saying, I studied under the best rabbis. I was a disciple of the best educated people in the world. My background, my education, better than anyone else in the room. These are like your rogue scholars, your PhD on multiple levels. These are the best of the best of the best. And so first, Paul talks about his confidence in his background. He's like, okay, if we're comparing spiritual resumes, mine is way better than yours. And he just listed all of those things. But he doesn't just have confidence in his background. Paul goes on to say, secondly, he talks about his behavior. So his background and then his behavior. He goes on in verse 5. As to the law of Pharisee, again, he's referring back to the Torah, back to the Old Testament, which again, Paul would have had memorized. And the Pharisees were a group of ruthless people about following the rules. All right, so the Pharisees were people who wanted not only themselves, but every single person to follow the rules. They were like OCD about rule keeping. Do this, don't do this, make sure you do this, don't do this. All of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, they were like, all right, we got to do this, we can't do this, we have to be perfect, nobody do anything wrong. That was the Pharisees. In verse 6, he goes on, he says, as to zeal a persecutor 
of the church. Now, this word zeal, uh, most of us know this word, but it can be translated in this context, incredible religious dedication. So the zealots in Paul's day were a group of people who hated the Roman Empire. So they would carry daggers like on their thigh or on their ankles, and they would get in crowds, and they would find Roman centurions and governors. They would grab a knife, they would slit the throat, and they would get back into the group because they hated the Roman government. These were like religious terrorists. They had so much passion, so much zeal, that what they wanted more than anything in life was to see the Roman Empire fall. That, those were the zealots. And fun fact, one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot, Simon the Zealot, if you know that, which there's nobody off limits in the kingdom of God, amen? But Paul wasn't a zealot, but Paul equated his passion with that kind of passion. So let's say you're here this morning, you follow Jesus, you're like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a passionate follower of Jesus. I love Jesus. I come to church. I read my Bible. I'm pretty passionate. Your passion does not compare at all to this kind of passion. My passion doesn't compare at all to this. Paul is equating his passion with what in our minds would seem ridiculous. Right? Paul is saying, if you think you have passion for the things of God, I have more, guaranteed. My confidence, my identity, who I am, if I look to those things, way better than you are. Paul wraps up his religious resume by talking about his righteousness under the law. And Paul says he is blameless. Now, Paul here is not saying that he's sinless, that he's never sinned before. He's saying, again, if you have a context for the Bible, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, Paul was perfect at that. He offered his sacrifices. He went to synagogue. He did what he was supposed to. People looked at Paul and they were like, wow, Paul comes from a great family, He's got a great education, great background. That guy's going places. Like, he is a great, great guy. And if there was anyone who had reason to put their confidence in their background or their behavior, it was Paul. His religious resume was perfect. Now, some of you here today, like me, might say, I'm a pretty good person. I've, I've done okay in my life. My background is pretty good. I know there's some things that like, I regret, like some mistakes I've made. But overall, I'm better than the people that I see on Facebook. All right? I'm better than the people I see on other social media, other people like in Squamish or like my friends from high school. I'm better than those people. So like, yeah, I'm not like a zealous terrorist, but like I'm a pretty good person overall. God should be pleased with what I've done. God should be pretty impressed with the things that I bring to the table. God should be happy with me and proud of me. He should bless me because look at all of these things that I've done for God. Paul's message to you and me this morning is the same one that it was to the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago. Paul is saying, my spiritual resume, hands down, is better than yours. But what makes this passage unique is that in verse 7, Paul completely switches gears. So look down with me, verse 7. Paul writes, 
whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, Paul here is using an accounting metaphor. Any accountants in here? Anybody who is like a numbers person? All right, one brother that I prayed. Nobody else. All right, good. So all of you are like me, terrible numbers, terrible with math. So this might bomb, but it's what Paul's doing. So I'm going with it. All right. Imagine you have two sides of a ledger. On one side, you have your gains, right? Your gains are your profits. For Paul, this was his religious resume. These are the things that Paul invested in. It was his reputation, his background, his education, that which gave him status and success among his peers. He was admired by other people. That's your profits, your gains column. But over here, Paul has his losses column. These are the things that Paul maybe overlooked or he misjudged or miscalculated or was like, ah, I shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have invested there. And what Paul is saying is that in the kingdom kingdom of God, life following Jesus, our resumes are completely upside down. Paul takes his column of confidence in the flesh, of achievement and family and status and education and money. He takes them from his profits and he puts them in his losses column. And he said, all of these good things that I have done, I count them as loss. So this begs the question, why would Paul do that? Why would Paul, a religious person, an astute person, better than the people that he knows, why would he say, I take all of those good things that I do, I'm going to take them out of my gains column, and I'm going to put them in my losses column? Why would he do that? Well, before we answer that, I want to ask you here this morning, what is in your gains column? If you think over your life, think over your background, your behavior, what defines you? What are you putting your identity in? What are those things that you would hope that the people in your life would look at you and think? I'm a good person. I've done good things. I have a great education. My background's really good. I have a lot of money. I have multiple houses, which in Vancouver is none of us, so that's an easy one for us. Nobody has houses in Vancouver, right? For some of you, your confidence is in your job and your success at work and how your boss sees you or how your employees see you. It's how much money you make or the car that you drive or your address or the gear that you have for your hobby. It's what you're able to do on the weekends, For others, maybe you find your confidence in a relationship that your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend is fill in the blank and that makes you better than other people. Some of us, our confidence is in our kids. I have two kids, uh, Haddon, and then two weeks ago just had uh, our daughter, Ivy, so she doesn't really contribute much to the family yet, but my little son, Haddon, he's two and he is the cutest kid in the world. And he loves people, and he is so kind, and he says thank you at restaurants, and he always walks up to our, we have youth at Westside, and the kids love him, and he's always giving people hugs, and he's just like the, 
He's the best kid in the world. I love him so much. But I often can look at Haddon and be like, my kid's not like those other kids, right? My kid in Sunday school or nursery, we never get texts. We never get calls. I never have to grab him and be like, shut up, right? My kids, my confidence, if I'm not careful, can be in my kids, can be in the things that my kids have done that people look at me and be like, man, you must be a great parent. You must read him the whole Bible every night. You must have some supernatural way of just like zinging the Holy Spirit into his life so that he's a good kid, right? Our confidence, our identity oftentimes is completely wrapped up in what other people think about us. Our reputation, what we post on social media, what we wear, who we hang out with, what we spend our money on, what do we do with our holiday time, what do people think of me, right? That's the essence of the selfie. Look at me, look how amazing my life is, and we post those things to literally get likes from people, for them to approve us, to look at us and be like, man, your life is amazing, your kids are amazing, your job is amazing, you are such a good person. Somebody notice me, somebody like me. That's how oftentimes we live our life. And maybe some of you here this morning are like Paul. You do come from a great family. You do have a great education. Your religious resume is amazing. That was me growing up. Uh, I I mentioned I grew up in the States. My dad was a pastor pretty much my whole life. I grew up uh, going to Christian school, and then when I was in grade six, I transitioned to a public school, and I was like the Jesus kid at the public school, right? I got most, in high school, I was voted most likely to be a priest, so they were kind of right, but a little bit like the great high priest and the priesthood of all believers, but not different denomination, right? I was like, I graduated a virgin. I did really good things. I had Bible studies. I was like, the, I was the Jesus kid. That was me. I, the, I felt like I was Paul. And maybe that's you this morning. Some of you maybe come here and you feel like you have no confidence. If someone were to ask you, what is your identity? You would have nothing to say. Because... Some of us come from a terrible family. Maybe our parents were divorced or we are divorced. Maybe we come from a string of broken relationships. Our spiritual resume is a disaster. Maybe some of you here feel like Moses. If you remember the story in the book of Exodus, Moses, given up as a child, adopted into a rich family, grew up with privilege, murdered a guy, fled to the wilderness. His brother hated him. He spent 40 years as a shepherd in the middle of nowhere. And God comes to him and says, I have the greatest task in all of human history and I'm giving it to you. And what does Moses say? God, I got you. I'm your man. Look at my spiritual resume. I'm the guy for the job, right? Is that what Moses says? No, he has this back and forth with God like, I got a stuttering problem. I killed a guy. Like, you're going to have to get Aaron to come and talk for me because I literally can't even talk to Moses. Like, I am not your guy. And maybe you feel like that this morning. You come from a string of mistakes and regrets, and your identity is in your past. Maybe the abuse that you've gone through, the mistakes 
that you've made. Maybe you feel like, I am what has been done to me. I look over my life, and I am that abuse. I am those regrets. I am that shame that I feel. I am my sexual history. I am my relationship or my lack of a relationship. I am my infertility. I am my past. I am fill in the blank. So as we talked about in the beginning, what is your confidence? What is your identity in? What's your background like? What is your behavior? What is in your gains column? Because Paul understood that following Jesus means that anything we can accomplish or achieve or do or be outside of Christ is actually a loss. It's nothing. And actually, it's worse than nothing. He goes on in verse 8. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, rubbish is a word I don't use very often. Maybe you do. But it's not a word that we typically use very often. And the Greek word for this is skubalon, right? So just right off the bat, if my son skubaloned on the floor, he wasn't like dropping roses, all right? It's just a gross word altogether. It sounds weird, and I don't like it. It can be translated rubbish or trash or refuse or garbage or kitchen scraps. Some scholars actually think that this, this word is Paul's way of using a bad four-letter word of the like first century where he's like, my works are scubalon. This was not a word that people used in church. And Paul's saying, that's my religious resume. I look at all of these things, my achievements, my accomplishments, even good things outside of Jesus as scubalon, as garbage, as worthless. So again, why does Paul do this? Why does he call us to do the same? Why should we look at our resumes and our achievements and our accomplishments and gifts and abilities outside of the finished work of Jesus as scubalon, as trash, as garbage? And this is important. Here's the linchpin for Paul's arguments, so stay with me. In verse 8, Paul says, I do this in order that or for the purpose of gaining Christ. Paul says we gain Jesus by looking to his accomplishments and his achievements and his qualifications and his life and death and resurrection for us. Paul encourages the Philippians and us here this morning, again, if you are a follower of Jesus, to put all of those things that we talked about, to take them from our gains column and put them in our losses column. They mean nothing. They're garbage. They are worthless. Forget them. Why, though, is the important question. Why would we do that? Well, Paul says, in order that we might gain Jesus. Now, what does it mean to gain Jesus? Like, what is... What does that mean in like daily life, like on the ground? There's lots we could talk about. Uh, We could spend our whole lives just learning how we gain Jesus and looking at all that. But Paul here mentions two ways that we gain Jesus when we put our confidence in him. Excuse me, two ways we gain Jesus. The first one is found in verse 9, the very beginning. And Paul says, and be found in him. 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or the good things that I've done, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the first way that we gain Jesus is by being found in Jesus. This is the essence of the gospel, that we do not have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, that comes from the good things that we've done. Meaning there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, to redeem ourselves. All of our efforts to gain approval and identity and acceptance outside of the finished work of Jesus for our sins is worthless. It is scubalon. Our faith, not in ourselves, not in our pastor, not in our church or our parents, our faith is not in those things. It is in the person and work of Jesus. Nothing else. And Paul makes this point in Ephesians 2 when he says, For by grace you have been saved by doing really, really good things. Right? By grace you have been saved through being a good person, through keeping yourself pure, for reading your Bible every day, for coming to church every weekend. That's not what he says. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one in the room can boast. Not me, not you, not the church in Philippi. No one can boast in your righteousness because your righteousness comes through your faith in the righteous one. Our faith in Jesus and the finished work of his life, death, and resurrection makes us one with Christ. In theology, the fancy term for this is our union with Christ, that we are one with him, that we are found in him, that we have the full righteousness of Jesus given to us. We are part of his family, and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So when we count our gains column as loss, we gain Christ and are found in him. Now, some of us uh, this morning, we've become so accustomed to our culture, and I'm guilty of this as well, that being found in Jesus is way down the list of our priorities, right? We want to be found as being talented, or we want to be found as being gifted, or found in having a great marriage, or found successful, or found getting the best grades, or the best mountain biker, or the best gear, or the most successful at work. We want to be found to be cool and beautiful and wealthy and influential and respected. Oftentimes what we want to do is we want to gain Christ by living a good life, trying to do more good than bad and hoping at the end of our lives when we get to the gates we can be like, all right, I didn't do really bad stuff. I went to church. Let me through the gates. Right? Paul is saying that's not the way that the gospel works. In in Romans chapter 3, he says that way of living actually brings forth death. In Romans 3, he writes, For by works of the law, those good things that you can do, those are all great things. But those things do not give you righteousness. 
No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. So our confidence in being a good person or following the rules or being known as this type of person or that type of person, Paul says, brings forth death. But when we have our confidence in the person and the work of Jesus and Christ alone, we actually gain Christ and we are found in him. And when we are found in Jesus, when that becomes our main focus, our main identity, nothing can stop God's love for us. Not divorce, not sickness, not loneliness or anxiety or depression or failure. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That's what it means to be found in Jesus. But not only are we found in Jesus, but Paul goes on to say that secondly, we gain Jesus by knowing Jesus. Now the word Paul uses uh, in verse 10 to know is in the aorist active infinitive verb tense, which is the most exciting thing I guarantee you you'll hear all day, right? But that's important. This verb tense carries the idea of an action that happened in the past, but is continuing to happen right now and will continue to happen in the future. We don't have this verb tense in English, but in Greek it means something that's already happened, something that is happening right now, and something that will continue to happen in the future. And Paul is saying that knowing Jesus is not just something that happened in your past. When you were a kid, when you were in high school, in a bonfire at camp, I know Jesus, and then I live my life the, the rest the way I want to live it. That's not knowing Jesus. It's something that continues to happen every single day. And we know this. We know what it means to know someone in life. Not just know about them, but truly know them. It means that you're united with them, that you share in the joys and the sufferings with them. And that's the incredible news about the gospel, is that when our confidence is in Jesus, we actually know him. We don't just know about him. We don't just know facts. We experience him. We know him. We are found in him, and our confidence becomes him. And we know the one who can considered his gains column as loss. Jesus is the picture of this. There is no one in human history who has ever counted their gains column as much as their losses for the sake of us. In Isaiah 6, this is what Jesus set aside for us. Listen to this. Just picture this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, the house was filled with smoke." And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. That image is what Jesus laid aside to come, to be born in a manger, to grow up as a poor refugee in the middle of nowhere, and then spend three years of his life teaching people how to live in the kingdom of God, to ultimately be rejected and crucified by the very ones that he came to save. That is Jesus. That is the one who counted his gains as losses for us. And there is cost in knowing Jesus. You walk alongside Jesus. You carry what Jesus carried. Part of gaining Jesus, that means that we share in his sufferings. To know Christ, Paul says, the next words, is to participate in his sufferings. Because those of us who identify with him will receive the same treatment that he did. And how did they treat Jesus? They didn't lift him up. He wasn't respected. He wasn't admired. People looked at him and were like, crucify him. We want Barabbas. You know who this guy is, but kill him. Get him out of here. And when we know Jesus, we share in his suffering. We risk our reputation. We forfeit our agenda for our lives. And we reject our selfish desire to gain popularity and acceptance from others. But why would we do that? What is the hope in knowing Jesus and sharing his suffering? Where's all of this leading to? Well, Jesus' suffering was followed by his resurrection. And in the same way, our suffering will ultimately end in our resurrection. In Romans 8, Paul writes that as co-heirs with Christ, we suffer with Jesus in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So gaining Jesus means that we are first found in Jesus, but secondly, we know Jesus. Friends, that is our confidence. When we count all of our backgrounds and our behavior as garbage, as loss, as scubalon, when we count them as garbage, we gain Jesus. And we can say with the Scottish pastor and hymn writer, Edmund Moe, which I didn't even plan this. Thanks, Holy Spirit. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood, they support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. And when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. My background, my behavior, the good things that I've done, it is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. 
So what does all this mean for us as we continue on in our summer rhythms and we look forward to the fall and the beginning of school or a new season of work or ministry or wherever life finds you? Two questions I want us to consider as we close. First, what is your confidence in this morning? What is your identity in? What are those things that define you? What is most important to you? What are those things that you want people to look at you and think? May I encourage you, make that be Jesus. And secondly, how can you put those things outside of the finished work of Jesus in your losses column and in so doing, gain Christ and be found in Christ? So let me close this morning the way that Paul closes our text. Philippians 3, verse 12. Or sorry, no, verse 12. Paul writes this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, because I'm not, none of us are, but I press on and I make this vision for my life my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Let me pray for us.